Thank you for that, Terence. There is a sermon outline, your order of services. Uh, You might want to take that out to follow along. Uh, That will be helpful. Well, I certainly hope it will be helpful for you. Uh, Let me uh, pray for us as we open up the Bible today. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal and you do speak in your word. Uh, We do pray as we come and look at this portion of the Bible, uh, which speaks of uh, the issue of sexuality, which so marks our culture. We do pray that we might Approach this passage with generosity as we hear it as your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In 1973, uh, Erica Jong wrote a novel called Fear of Flying. Uh, And it caused a storm in her day. I suspect uh, in our day and age, uh, it wouldn't actually make uh, the headlines. Uh, It was a book about a woman's sexual desire. That's what it was, or a woman's sexual desires. Uh, Isadora is the main character in that book, a married woman, and what happens is she embarks on a quest for the ultimate sexual experience, Uh, sex that's free from any relational commitment, uh, free from emotional attachment, free from any commitment. Uh, And what happens in the book is Isadora bed hops her way through different relationships in search of the ultimate sexual experience, in search uh, what she crudely calls, and you have it there in your outline, the zipless F. Zipless because it's devoid of any relationship. Uh, and, and that caused a stir in uh, the days in which she wrote in the 70s. But in many ways, Isadora's story is really the story of our culture, a parable really of our culture, uh, a city and culture today that celebrates sexual freedom in all its forms. Uh, As one author puts it, sex is now out of the closet and comfortably sits in the family armchair each evening. Uh, So whether it's casual sex, premarital sex, same sex between men and women, sex between married men and women, group sex, you can find it online. Netflix, Amazon Prime, even Disney+, Plus, YouTube, free-to-air TV. And so whether you realize it or not, we live in a culture where Sexual freedom is glorified. Sexual freedom is celebrated. Sexual freedom is enjoyed. Uh, In fact, sexual freedom is actually one's right. Uh, It's fair to say that we live in a city and culture that wants to enjoy sex. Sex without boundaries. Sex without guilt, without condemnation. Sex that's unrestrained. Uh, A city, really, where the rightness or wrongness of sexual activity is determined not by any standards of what's good, what will flourish, but but by my personal freedom. My right, really, to exercise what I believe is my right to personal happiness and freedom. And really, that's the sexual culture, not just of our city, but all cities across the West. Now, I want you to have a look at the Bible passage today that was read for us. And I know uh, as um, Terence read the passage, I want to set the context of the passage that we're going to look at uh, by really firstly addressing the elephant in the room. Uh, Because when it comes to a passage like this, everyone tends to focus on verse 26 and verse 27. So in your Bibles, you notice verse 26 and verse 27. Uh, It appears, and I say it appears, it appears that Paul is attacking homosexual people, gay people, people in same-sex relationships. Now, I want to say right up front that that is not the intention of the passage. Uh, In fact, that's not what the passage is about. Uh, In fact, this passage is not about sexuality. So I'll say a few things about sexuality today because you simply can't avoid it in our culture. But because, in fact, this passage addresses sexual culture in the Roman day, uh, in the Roman world, unlike our culture. But that's not what the passage is primarily about. And that's very important for you to understand that. 
uh, Paul, because Paul doesn't just speak of the sexual culture uh, of the city of Rome, the group in which he writes. He doesn't speak just of the moral culture of his day, uh, because I want you to notice, notice from verse 28 onwards, he doesn't just speak of sexual culture, he speaks of moral culture. Okay? So, so, so he's not targeting sexuality. It's not the only thing he's targeting. Uh, remember what we've said about the book of Romans. Uh, if you come with me to verse 16 to verse 17, what is the book of Romans about? What is this book that Paul writes about? Uh, verse 16 and verse 17 says that the book of Romans is about the power of God to save. And the rest of the book is unpacking how God saves and the things God saves us from. Uh, salvation, he says, is not by works, uh, but by faith or trust in Jesus' work. Now, what's actually happening in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, uh, the three chapters that we're going to look at over the month of May, Paul is going to show us why everyone, why all people need saving. That's what he's doing. Uh, so it, it's not like Paul is targeting people with a different sexual worldview or sexual ethic uh, as if that was the worst possible sin. No. As the chapters unfold, you'll see that he's targeting everyone. Those who live as if God wasn't there. Those who live as they sexually please. Whether sex outside of marriage or same-sex relationships. Uh, he targets those who want to live life, deciding for themselves what's right and what's wrong. And then what you're going to discover from chapter 2 onwards, in fact, two chapters, he targets the morally religious. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? He only devotes two verses, basically, to sexual sins, and then he spends the next two chapters devoted to people who are morally religious. So what does he do? He condemns the sexual culture of the day, the moral culture of the day, and the religious culture of the day. Now, that's what he's going to do. And so the whole point of chapter 118 to chapter 3, verse 20, the big idea in these three chapters is Paul is basically saying, in God's economy, there are no good guys. There are no heroes. There are no good guys, which is why he says everyone needs saving. And so you get to the end of chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Jew and Gentile are all under the power of sin. They need saving. Or you read chapter 3, verse 22 and verse 23, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All need saving. Now, this is what Paul is actually doing in this passage. Uh, all need saving because all who have rejected God, people who live as they sexually please, people who live as they morally please, even religious people who think they're good enough for God, they need saving too. The immoral and the moral, the irreligious and the religious, the lawbreaker and the lawkeeper, right? The rebel and the pious, everyone needs saving, okay? Now, I can assure you that if you don't find yourself in today's passage, you will find yourself in next week's passage and the weeks that come. So, no one escapes what Paul says. So have a look at our passage today, which is what I want to do. Uh, the first thing I want to highlight for you, uh, and you notice there the first point, the domino effect. Uh, this is what you notice. The first thing I want to highlight for you is this downward spiral that comes when people reject God. Uh, when God is removed from the horizon of our lives, uh, what happens uh, to a culture when God is actually marginalized on, in, in the public sphere? Notice three times in this passage, Paul says, Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, God gave them over. You see it there in verse 24? God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And in verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do as they saw fit. It's actually the Bible's way of saying that when we deny God, when we ignore God and remove Him, 
there will be a domino effect. That's what these verses are saying. Uh, there will be a domino effect in the way we think about sexuality, and there will be a domino effect in the way we relate to each other morally. Okay? This is Paul's logic. Okay? So there is a logic to this. This is Paul's logic. If there is a God whose power is evident in all creation, which he's talked about before, if there is a God who made you and the world in which you live, that you now deny and that you now reject, if there is a God to whom you owe everything, to whom you will not acknowledge and give thanks for, basically, if there is a God and a creator, it's fair to assume that he has a design, a design and a purpose for your life and the world in which he makes. That's the logic. Uh, it mean, if there is a God, it means that there is a creator who has made you as men and women in his image. He has a design for the flourishing of human life, the good life, the best life. It means he has a purpose for the way we are to relate and live in relationship with each other, in relationship with the creation, uh, in relationship with each other, even in expressing our sexuality, if there is a God, I say. Because remember the opening words of Genesis, which Terence read for us? He made the male and female... In his image, he created them with worth and dignity, but he also made them with distinction, male and female. Now, have a look at verse 21 with me that Andrew would have looked at with you last week. Paul says, though, that this is the problem. Men and women deny God their creator and refuse to give him thanks. You see verse 21? So what happens, verse 22 and verse 23, when people deny God, when they choose not to worship him, a great exchange takes place. Worship is not directed upward, it's directed downwards, okay? Not towards God, but towards His creation. Not to the hand who gives you stuff, but to the stuff in your life. Uh, there is a worship void in every heart, which is why uh, if you hear at Grace Point long enough, I keep saying to you, worship is not a Christian thing, it's not a religious thing, it's an everybody thing. Everyone worships something or someone or some pursuit in their lives. If God, your Creator, is not the object of your worship, I can assure you, someone or something else is that you are living for, that you are pursuing, that consumes you, that controls you, that directs you, that you are a slave to. And so you notice verse 24 to verse 27, what Paul says is a great exchange takes place sexually. God gave them over, not to freedom, but to enslavement to their sexual desires. My sexuality, my sexual preference becomes the sole object of my worship. Giving expression to my sexual desires is what then controls my life. That's the first one. And then notice verse 28 to verse 32. He says, another great exchange takes place. I do what I want rather than what God wants. God gave them over not to freedom, but to enslavement, to living my way. Me, myself, and I becomes what consumes me and controls my life. It's the Bible's way of saying... That when we deny God, when we reject God, our Creator, when we refuse to worship Him, we'll all worship something or someone else or some other pursuit in our lives. There'll be a domino effect. And God, in effect, actually says, go for it. Go for it, because I won't stop you. Uh, when people will not say, when people will not say to God, thy will be done, God says to them, thy will be done. God's judgment, notice, isn't always seen in His intervention. He doesn't always intervene, does He? Sometimes it's seen in, his exper in the experience of His silence and His non-intervention in our lives. 
He lets us do what we want. So we experience and we feel the consequences of life without Him. Uh, that was true as well in the Old Testament because when you go in, uh, and look at the Old Testament, sometimes God executes His judgment, not just in, in terms of bringing the, the foreign army uh, to destroy Israel. Sometimes He withholds His Word. Uh, sometimes judgment is, is expressed in God choosing not to do anything and allowing His people to go their own way so they experience life and a world without Him. Now, here we read that when people choose to deny God their creator, they will not acknowledge Him or give Him thanks. When they will not worship Him, He simply leaves them to their own devices. God gave them over. Pretty much like the prodigal son that Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son, he wants to go his own way. He wants to leave the home of his father to live his own life. And and his father says, go for it. He lets him go. And so I want you to listen very carefully this morning. God does not always intervene in judgment because sometimes His judgment is seen and expressed in allowing us to go our own way, to live the kind of lives we want to live. Like the prodigal son, He wants us to experience the domino effect of life without Him. You make sex the object of your worship and you end up feeling used. You make a love relationship the object of your worship, and when you're betrayed, it crushes you. You make your career the object of your worship, and when it goes south, it leaves you feeling empty. I've mentioned this before, uh, that American author David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, and I've got the quote there in your outlines, uh, he's he's not a Christian, he writes, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. In other words, he says, if I want to be honest, I said there's no one right, who does not believe in God. Everyone believes in a God. The question is what they, what they actually believe in, what they actually worship. Because notice what he says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice, he says, we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or some spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much, he says, anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual law, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you always end up feeling weak and afraid. You, will never, you, you, you feel you will need more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Why? Because there's always someone smarter. Now, it is a very interesting observation for someone who isn't a Christian. Because he's saying, worshiping stuff, People, possessions, and pursuits, sex, and money, and power, a love relationship, always ends up consuming us. It eats us alive. And then it leaves us in a far darker place than before. It's just a matter of time. That's what Wallace says. Paul says it's actually the judgment of God. He gave them up. He gives us up over to our sexual desires and to living life our own way. It's not freedom. It's enslavement. And so sometimes God's judgment isn't expressed in His intervention, but His withdrawal, His non-intervention. One author puts it like this, God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness. And the resulting process of moral and spiritual degeneration is to be understood as a judicial act of God. A judicial act of God. This is the revelation of God's wrath. When people will not say, thy will be done, God actually says to them, thy will be done. He allows us 
to continue in our perpetual state of rebellion. He allows us to persist in our ungodliness, our sinful pursuits. He, he allows us to actually stay in our unrepentant state so that we experience what life is like without Him. So that we will eventually reap the personal consequences of life without Him. Now, it's worth reflecting on this, isn't it? The, the apparent inaction of God in our lives, in allowing us to persist in our sin, to go our own way, to maybe ignore areas of rebellion and ungodliness, to continue in disobedience, might actually be God's act of judgment in your life and my life. Because remember, in Luke 15, the father let the prodigal son go. And, and the prodigal son, notice he goes and he eventually finds himself, first, he is happy because he's living life his own way, but soon he finds himself in a mud pit, alone, cold, and hungry. Now, maybe you're not there because you just haven't found yourself just there, just yet, in the mud pit, alone, cold, and hungry. God does not always step in to judge us. Sometimes His, judge, his judgment is to allow us to go our own way, to allow us effectively to run headlong into the darkness until we find ourselves lost. And so maybe, just maybe, God has given you over to something in your life that you're obsessed with, obsessed with, consumed with, something you've made the object of your worship. Maybe there is something in your life, a pursuit that you know is sinful, but is consuming you and controlling you. And maybe, just maybe, this morning, this passage is the handbrake the handbrake that's telling you to stop the domino effect in your life. Maybe. Now, the domino effect, you notice, is going to be seen in two areas. We're going to look at those two areas. Uh, because when society and culture removes God from the public sphere, it affects two areas in life, right? It affects uh, the, the sexual culture of the day and the moral culture of the day. Basically, uh, people live as they sexually please, and people decide on right and wrong in their lives as they morally please. In the area of sex and morality, and you've got it there in your outline, people live according to the you do you, I do me mantra. Okay, that's effectively it. You remove God from the picture, uh, and in two areas of life, sexually and morally, people live the you do you, I do me mantra in life. If there is no God, then there is no objective design or purpose for sex, and there's no objective design and purpose for morality. There is no right or wrong. So here's the first one. Have a look with me at verse 24 and verse 27. Uh, and and this, is not a, this will not be strange to you because sexually, we do live in a culture where everyone lives by the you do you, I do me mantra in life. Notice verse 24. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, to a range of sexual practices that have become acceptable. Prostitution, sex outside marriage, adultery, unfaithfulness in marriage, everything that promotes sexual impurity. And then notice verse 26, it says again, God gave them over uh, to shameful lusts. Women exchanging natural sexual relations with women and men doing the same thing, same-sex activity. Here's what Paul's saying. When God no longer shapes or forms or informs our lives, sexually, everyone lives the you-do-you, I-do-me mantra in life. That's what he's actually saying. Now, that actually should not surprise us, Okay. That should not surprise us. Uh, if you're not a Christian or you have friends in the workplace who are not Christian, I totally understand the secular view on sex. Totally get it. 
In fact, I totally get where the secular is coming from when it comes to sexual views. Uh, If there is no God, if there is no creator, if there is no single purpose or design for sexuality, then you are free to do whatever you want, with who you want, when you want. No one should tell you what to do with your sexuality and your sexual desires. Now, in our Western culture, sexuality or sex is your personal choice. It's no one else's business. Because there is nothing outside yourself. If there is no God, there's nothing outside yourself that tells you or informs you about your sexuality, its design, its purpose, how it should best and could best flourish, what the good life looks like in the area of sexuality. But I want to take a step back and I want to say to you, let's do a thought experiment this morning. I understand if there is no God, but what if there was a God? What if there was a God who made you? What if there was a God who made us? It's fair to assume that He also would have made us as sexual beings, which is why you have the sexual desires and longings that you have. If that's true, it means there is a God who has a design for my sexuality. There is a, there is a God who has a design for my sex life for men and women to give expression to their sexuality, how it is to be best enjoyed, a design for your sex life that can, that can help your life best thrive and flourish, how you can experience and enjoy the best sex ever. Do you actually believe that? The Bible actually teaches that. But if there is a God, if there is a God, and you now take God out of the picture, then it's also true, isn't it? it leads to a false understanding of sex. A you-do-you and I-do-me approach to sex. A false understanding of how your sex life can flourish. A false view of the actual purpose and design for my sexuality and sex. Now, there are different views on sex in our culture. Uh, For some people, sex is just a biological urge that needs to be fulfilled, right? That's the base evolutionary view. Uh, For others, it's to propagate the human race. It's simply a biological act to increase numbers, and that's it. Uh, For others, it's an expression of love between two people. Uh, That's common in our culture. Sex is an expression of love between two people, but not necessarily limited to two people, because you simply enjoy sex as you move from relationship to relationship. That's the casual view of sex. But more and more today, sexuality is understood and seen as an expression of my personal identity. Uh, Sexuality is seen as an expression of my personal worth, who I am. Uh, I don't know if you realize this. This is the reason why talking about sex and sexuality is such an explosive topic uh, in today's culture. Uh, It's an explosive topic because today, personal identity and worth is tied up with someone's sexuality, their sexual preference, their sexual desires. I've actually preached this passage before, 15 years ago. I was saying to Pastor Joe, he's actually preaching at our Granville campus today. And Pastor Joe has preached this passage as well a few times. And I said to Pastor Joe, I said, you know, I preached this passage uh, 15 years ago or, or 12 years ago, and I'm not preaching it the same way. Not because the Bible has changed, but because culture has changed. Uh, and so, so much of what I have to say is to set the context so that people don't misunderstand me. That's the culture in which you and I live. But I want you to understand that sexuality today is tied up with people's personal identity and worth. And that's the reason why people are offended by what we find here in the Bible. To deny someone's sexuality is to deny their personal identity and worth. 
Uh, to speak against someone's sexuality is to oppress them. To disagree with someone's sexuality is to deny them love. It's bigoted. It's unloving. Why? Because in our culture today, people define their sexuality, right? Uh, they define themselves by their sexuality. Their identity, their worth, who they are is defined by their sexual preference. Now, maybe for some of you, that's how you define your worth. Uh, if I can give expression to my sexual preference, I exist. I'm complete. If I can't give expression to my sexuality, I'm invisible. I'm incomplete. And so, I don't know whether you realize this, as you survey the landscape of our world and our city, who you are today is bound up with your sexuality. Very important for you to understand that. Now, I also want you to understand this. Christian people do not define themselves. Christian people do not define others by their sexuality. Did you know that? So I don't define myself as heterosexual. I don't, you know, when I introduce myself to people, I don't say, hey, I'm a heterosexual Christian. I don't do that, right? Because Christian people do not define themselves by their sexuality. It doesn't give me worth or value. Being heterosexual is not my identity. It's not the badge or the label I wear. And listen up very carefully. I don't define you, and I don't define any of your non-Christian friends by their sexuality. Whether they are LGBTIQA+, that, may, that might be how they label, label themselves, that might be how you label yourself, but that's not how I'm labeling you. Let me tell you how I'm labeling you. As a Christian, whether you or your friends are LGBTIQA+, I see you first and foremost as a man or woman to be loved and made in the image of God. I think that's really important to understand. As a Christian, I see you first and foremost as someone made in the image of God to be loved and cared for and valued. I see you as someone made in the image of God, given worth and value and dignity, not because of your sexuality, but simply because God made you. That's really, really important, isn't it? In, in fact, I want to say to you, you are much more than your sexuality. I see you as a man or woman whom God has made with sexual desires to be lived out and enjoyed according to His design. That's the reason why you are loved and valued. Not because you are LGBTIQA+. No. The reason why it's so hard to have a conversation, to have a robust and a very civil discussion or conversation in culture and society is because sexually, right, everything is tied up, right? Sexually, sexuality is tied up to people's identity and worth, which is why, you know, if you disagreed with my heterosexual beliefs, I'm not going to be offended. And I'm not going to take it personally because it's not my identity, right? But if I disagreed with your sexual practice or your sexual preference, often you will take offense because in your eyes, I've personally attacked you. I've attacked who you are, your identity, and that's the reason why, you know, when Christian people come along and they say that certain uh, sexual behavior or practices are wrong, uh, that's seen as hating and unloving. Uh, what you read here, and certainly what Paul writes here in today's culture, is seen as an expression of hate speech. Why? Because when you say these things, you've made a moral statement. You are now attacking someone's worth and value as an individual. Uh, when you talk about their lifestyle, that's, what happen that's, what, that's what's happening. You're seen as personally assaulting them. You're seen as being oppressive. And so if you're a Christian, I want to say to you, that's a clash of cultures. If you're not a Christian, I want to say to you, that's also a clash of cultures. Uh, because the secular has a, has a no-God framework. 
sexuality has taken the place of God and becomes the, the, the place of identity and worth. It's basically someone expressing their identity. Well, but the Christian, on the other hand, believes that there is a God who made us in His image as sexual beings, who has a design and purpose for sexuality. And so sexuality for the Christian is God's gift, right? Uh, it's, it's not something that gives us worth and value. Uh, the Christian view of sexuality, then, is a moral issue. The secular view of sexuality is that it's just someone expressing who they are. And that's why there's a clash of cultures. If you're a Christian, it's important to understand that. Uh, if you're not a Christian, it's also important to understand that. I want to say to you, if I truly believe that there is a God, a creator who made you, then you are loved and you are special not because of your sexuality, but simply because you're made in His image. And if you're made in His image as a man or woman, then He must have a design and purpose for your sexual desires, your gender, the way your sexuality is expressed in a way that will flourish it, if there is a God. And we know from the Bible that God's design is for this to be expressed in an exclusive, committed relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. Now, an individualistic culture basically says, you do you, I do me. That's not love. You know, it's actually false love. It's false love because the subtext of you do you, I do me is, I don't really care. I'm happy for you to do what you do as long as you don't interfere with my life. That's not love. That's I don't care as long as you don't interfere with my life. A community of love actually says, and as Daniel outlined, I care enough to tell you that your significance is not found in your sexuality. It's not, your significance is not found in your sexual preference. You are loved and valued, not because you are giving expression to your LGBTIQA preferences or desires. Fulfilling your sexual desires does not make you complete. Your worth and value, a community of love says, your 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 worth and value is found in being a man or woman made in the image of God. Made in the image of a God who has made you, who loves you, whose design and purpose for your life, your sexuality and all your life, He's given you a design, He's put down a design so that you will flourish and thrive in life. Now, if there is no God, if there is no Creator, then of course you're free to do whatever you want. Because there's no design or purpose. It all hinges on your desire, what you make of life, what you make of your sexuality. But I do want to say this, even if you go down a certain path sexually, there is no assurance that that's the right path, is it? There is no way of knowing that it will lead to sexual flourishing if there is no God. But if there was a God and a creator and you're made in His image as a sexual man or woman, then it means there is and you can know a design and purpose for your sexuality that will lead to your flourishing. Now, the domino effect is also felt in a second area of life. Have a look with me. Uh, so you've got uh, the domino effect in sexual culture, and then you've got a domino effect now in moral culture. Uh, that's found in verse 28 to verse 32, because what's going to happen now is Paul's going to highlight uh, the domino effect when God is removed and people live without God. What happens is, Right and wrong becomes relativized. In other words, people start to live with no regard for right or wrong in their relationships. Okay? People live as they sexually please before, now they live as they morally please. It's basically morally the you do you, I do me mantra in life. 
So notice verse 28. Just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain, to keep, to preserve, to hold on to the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do, they do what ought not to be done. Okay? And so in other words, uh, what Paul is saying, this is what happens when God is edged out. You end up with a mind that is devoid of God, uh, devoid of God's design and purpose and design and way, uh, not just in the area of sexuality, but in human behavior. And what you have in, in these verses is the spiraling, the breakdown, really, of human community and relationships. Uh, have a look at verse 29 and verse 31. Uh, if you haven't got your Bible, look at the person next to you. Uh, verse 29, verse 31, there's a list of 21 vices. Okay? Have a look from verse 21. 21 acts. Okay? Now have a quick read. Because I want you to notice something. Everything you see, the list of 21, everything you see is either something you have experienced or something you have seen in various degrees in your family, at school, at university, in your workplace. In fact, we see these things in every sphere of life, in politics, in sport, in academia, in business, by people in power, the media, Relationships marked by every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossiping, slandering, insolent behavior, arrogance, and boasting, inventing creative ways of doing evil, disobedient and, and, and disrespect for their parents, no understanding, no fidelity, no faithfulness, no love, no mercy. Now, at the center of it all is that one phrase, God-hating. God-hating. Now, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying when you remove God out of the social sphere or the public sphere, when you deny Him, when there is no longer knowledge of his word, his way, his design, his purpose, moral standards disappear. There is a moral decay that takes place. Society's morality starts to disintegrate. M moral behavior changes in your workplace, in your families, uh, in every sphere of life. What's wrong becomes right and what's right becomes wrong. Morally, we end up as a society and a culture where you do you, I do me. Without God, whether you realize this, without God, whether you realize this, moral behavior and expectations all become relativized. In fact, uh, the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre is not a Christian, uh, he saw this to be true as well, and he was certainly not someone who believed in God. I've got uh, a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre there for you. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, he writes, the existentialist, on the contrary, finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist. For there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. A world that has designed, but a world has no, that has no God, well, does not give me justification to, 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 to decide what's right and what's wrong. And so he writes, There can no longer be any good a priori since there is no infinite or perfect consciousness to think it. It is nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men, because there is no God. Dostoevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And then he says, that for existentialism, which is the belief in our culture, by the way, and that for existentialism is the starting point. He says, everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. And man is the consequence forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend on upon either within or outside himself. He discovers forwith that is he, that is he, he is without excuse. In other words, man is the measure of all things. You are the measure of all things. You do you, I do me. As long as you don't hurt me, do what you like. If there is no God, then morally, you do you, I do me. 
God says, if you will not submit to my will, then your will be done. Or in the words of the world of the judges in the Old Testament, everyone did as they saw fit because there was no king. It's interesting, isn't it? And it's really interesting for me to observe the move in Western culture today. Because uh, in the West, as we all know, there is a move to remove God from the public sphere. Uh, There is no room for the religious perspective. No talk of God is permitted, allowed, or even considered. What people fail to realize is that there are consequences if you do that. And and, and what we're witnessing in the West, not just in in our city, but across the Western world, is the de-evolution of culture and society because what is happening is the removal of the foundations upon which you've built Western culture. Uh, One of my favorite uh, authors is uh, the historian Tom Holland. Uh, Tom Holland is not a Christian. Uh, He's also got a podcast called The Rest is History. It's worth listening to. Um, And he he wrote a book, or he he wrote a book called Dominion, uh, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, that the West is what it is because of the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's an amazing book, not written by a Christian. He writes, the freedoms we enjoy, the rights we have, the values we live by owes all its existence to Christianity. Uh, In an interview with N.T. Wright, he said, compacted into this very, very small amount of writing was almost everything that explains the modern world and the way the West has then moved on to shape concepts like international law, concepts of human rights, and all these kinds of things. Ultimately, they do not go back to the Greek philosophers. They do not go back to the, Roman, to the Roman world. They go back to Paul, his letters, I think, along with the four Gospels. They are the most influential, the most impactful, the most revolutionary writings that have emerged from the ancient world. And so, uh, when you read his book, it's a fairly long book. I think there's about six, 700 pages. He says, our Western values of justice and mercy, compassion for the poor, human rights, women's rights, even the scientific enterprise, they all find their roots and their foundation in Christianity. It's a bold claim, but that's what his studies have shown as he studied basically the history of Christianity in the Western world. He traces it in his book, Dominion. And so what Tom Holland says is that trying to remove Christianity out of the public sphere fails to recognize that you have what you have because of Christianity. In other words, he says, Christianity actually brought us out of the Dark Ages. And if you remove Christianity, he says, you are effectively moving back to the Dark Ages. Now, he's not a Christian, remember that. Because a world without God, he says, is a world without boundaries. A world without a moral compass. Or as Jean-Paul Sartre points out, everything is permitted because there is no right or wrong. And so, what secular culture so enjoys cannot and would not exist without the Christian foundations upon which it was built. Uh, Tim Keller writes, if it's true that these humanistic values, the values we enjoy today, that shape the West, he says, if it's originated out of Christian belief, he says, will not these values make less and less sense and become less and less compelling, desirable, believable, necessary in a society that's abandoning its core foundational beliefs? Tom Holland puts it like this, If secular humanism, I've got the quote there for you guys, uh, page 540. If secular humanism derives not from reason or from science, but from the distinctive course of Christianity's evolution, a course that he says is, in the opinion of the growing numbers in Europe and America, has left God dead, 
then how are its values anything more than the shadow of a corpse? What are the foundations of, it, of its morality, if not myth? In other words, what he's saying is that if you remove the foundations today, if you leave God for dead in culture and society, how are the values you hold to anything more than a shadow of a corpse? Those values are dead as well. What are the foundations of our morality? If not, he says, myth. Values are not grounded. Values are grounded. You know, values that are grounded in what is untrue make them untrue. Isn't that right? So the values you have today, if they're grounded in what is untrue, makes them untrue. It makes them personal preference, not truth. Not morally binding on all people. Now, you've got to remember that Tom Holland is not a Christian and neither was Jean-Paul Sartre. But you want to know what? They're both pointing out what Paul is pointing out. When you ignore God, when you deny God, when you reject God, you end up morally with a you-do-you, I-do-me world. Not a better world, but a broken world. You see verse 28? Just as they did not think of it of anywhere to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they do what ought not to be done. Now, can secular people be highly moral and unselfishly committed to others? Of course they can. But it's worth asking, isn't it? In the long run, can a society and culture stay committed to those values when they abandon the beliefs upon which those values have built their world, their culture, their society? Now, time will tell, but we read here, a world without God only leads to a morally relativized world. A world not determined by God, but a world where you do you and I do me. So this is actually the bad news of our passage, by the way. In fact, we've got like uh, chapter 2 and then chapter 3, which is all bad news, before we get to the good news at the end of chapter 3. But this is the bad news of our passage. When people will not say, thy will be done, God says, thy will be done. And then God gives them over to their idols, to worshipping people and pursuits and possessions in their lives, to being enslaved morally and sexually, even though they don't realize that, to living as they sexually please, to doing what they want in life, regardless for right or wrong. That's the bad news. The good news, and we're going to keep coming back to verse 16 and verse 17. You want to keep coming back to verse 16, 17? The good news, notice, is that the gospel is the power of God to save, that brings salvation to all who believe, Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, right? Rebellious or moral. The gospel can reverse things in our lives. It can fix where things have gone wrong. It can make right what is wrong when it comes to God. It can get us back on the right track when it comes uh, to our lives sexually and morally. So we begin to experience the best life God has designed for us. Now, maybe today, as you've heard me speak, you've realized how messed up your life is sexually. Maybe you realize that. Maybe you've got a sexual past that haunts you because you've fallen into sexual sin. Uh, the guilt actually crushes you. Can I say to you, salvation is possible. That's why Jesus came and died. You know, with one hand, God gives you up to your sexual desires. You go down the sexual path and it leaves you feeling guilty and condemned. With the other hand, God gives up His Son to die for your sexual sins. The guilt and the judgment was laid on Him. The Father's love runs deeper than you realize. The Father's love runs deeper than you realize this morning. There is no past sexual sin that Jesus did not die for. 
come and find forgiveness and a fresh start in the Father's arms. Or, or maybe today as you've heard me speak, you realize how the pain of past sexual sins have left you not just guilty but angry. You feel taken advantage of, you feel used and abused. You feel very hurt, you feel the pain. Can I say to you, salvation and healing is possible today. That's why Jesus came and died. With one hand, he gave you over to your sexual desires and you feel crushed and hurt and abused. With the other hand, God gives up his son to die for your sexual mistakes. Where your pain, your anger, the injustice of it all is placed on him. He died in your place and he carried that. The father's love runs deeper than you realize. There is no past sexual hurt or injustice that Jesus did not die for. Come and find forgiveness in the arms of the Father. Or maybe today as you've heard me speak, you've realized, because you've hidden it, right? You've realized how much of your identity and worth and your value is tied up with your sexual identity. Maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe you struggle identifying with your gender. And you feel, you know, this is who I am. It's crushing you because it's suppressed. Can I say to you, your sexuality is not your identity. Your sexuality is, it doesn't, doesn't give you worth or value. What makes you loved and valued? What makes you a person who is worth dignity and respect is that you are a man or woman made in the image of a loving God who has made you with sexual urges and longings, who has a design for your sexuality to flourish and thrive. And so let me encourage you today to bring your sexuality under God to entrust it to His care and His design for your life. Not just to any God, but to the God who has loved you, who has sent Jesus to die for you. You know, the Father's love for you runs deeper than you realize. He invites you to come and surrender to His care, to His design. Can you trust Jesus enough to entrust your sexuality to His care and direction? Church, I want you to hear the good news this morning. God gives His Son over to die for our sinful desires in life. All our sexual, all our moral failures so that we might be right with Him. So that we might have a fresh start, life under His good purposes and designs. So that we might flourish in these two areas of life. A fresh start is possible. And so entrust not just your brokenness and failures to Him. Entrust not just your, your sexual uh, and your behaviors, struggles to Him, and trust it to His care and design as your Creator and God, the God who has loved you and died for you at the cross. Friends, the Father's love runs deeper than you realize, and He does invite you this morning to come and surrender your sexuality and your moral life to His care and design. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do want to thank you because you are not just distant, but you are near. You are not just creator who is distant, but you are a creator who has made us in your image. You have made us with dignity, with worth and value. And we know we are loved ultimately because you sent Jesus to come, to die in our place, to restore our broken sexuality, to, broke, to, to restore and, and and to, to forgive our, our broken moral behavior. 
We want to bring our lives today under your rule and your care. We thank you that because of Jesus, there's always a fresh start. And so we want to bring two areas of life to you today, our sexuality and our moral lives. We want to know the forgiveness that takes place at the cross where Jesus died in our place. But we want to also know a fresh start. As we bring it under your rule, we pray that you might flourish us so that we might begin to experience the best life possible. Not just in our sexuality, but our moral behavior in all our relationships. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.